Are you listening? Damn. And welcome back once again to the Endurance Hour Podcast, episode 364. Alongside Kona coach Wendy Mater, I'm Dave Erickson. Glad to have you with us this week. Uh, a lot of variety of questions uh, all over the board, from emails to chat rooms and even uh, the T2 Endurance Club on Facebook, which is a private group. Just request to join, answer a few questions, and you are part of the community of, I think, 700 strong. We're going to begin in there today, Wendy. Uh, this is about liquid nutrition, <clears throat> which I'm, I'm very familiar with. And when I race, I usually just squeeze gels into a, a single bottle of water, shake it up, race morning. And that's my nutrition for the day for a half Ironman, for example. So I'm making sure I have 300 calories total, 900 calories total for the race. So the question here is, you know, uh, who uses liquid only or liquid and solid fuel to get in their calories while racing? Let's get your perspective first on how you uh, fuel during your races. Let's go maybe a half Ironman for, for this example. Right. So for me, I'm looking at grams of carbohydrate per hour, which generally is kind of calorie I'm looking at calories as well mm -hmm. but um, after talking to Dr. Cindy Dallow who has her PhD RD we did a few interviews on the podcast with her when I heard her talking about trying to get in a certain grams per hour then I did my own research and then I've looked at other nutrition gurus such as Dr. Stacy Sims um, I think about grams per hour so I'm thinking mm -hmm. on that around 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour which is about 240 calories because there's four calories per gram of carbohydrate. Sometimes I'm on the lower end. So, you know, I'd say I'm in the 200 calorie-ish range. I don't really go much above 60 grams of carbohydrate. And the reason is, is I got my sweat rate tested at the Gatorade Sports Science Institute in 2007. And what they did is that protocol was a two hour ride at your Ironman intensity followed by a two hour treadmill run at Ironman intensity. Wow. And they did some pre-calculations with urine samples and they you had to collect your urine while you were doing this protocol. And they did all these different, had all these different variables. It was so long ago, I don't remember exactly. And, and I ate my Ironman nutrition, which back then I was eating around four to 450 calories per hour, which is probably wow. in that upper range of, you know, 90-ish to 100 grams of carbohydrate per hour. And I did that with a power bar, <clears throat> the, the regular power bar, <laughs> and um, water and Gatorade. And so, okay. and probably a gel. I probably did a bar of gel and a bottle of Gatorade with water. And after all is said and done, based on my body weight, my intensity, and, and we were doing this at the humidity, the temperature and humidity of Kona, they told me I was eating way too much, I was at risk for GI distress, and that, um, number one, I get all my sodium from Gatorade, so I've never had to really rely on salt taps or anything like that, and that and they lowered my caloric intake to around 150 calories, which they suggested I take a gel water and a bottle of Gatorade <clears throat> per hour, which was rough, not, maybe not a full bottle, but anyways, they did these recommendations for me based on this test. 2008, I followed the protocol and, you know, I had my best race ever in 2008, not just from the, the nutrition standpoint, but having that nutrition dialed in really helped a lot because when I'm dialed in on my nutrition, it takes my mind away from the race and I'm just really focused on did I have my gel that hour? Did I have my bottle of Gatorade? Did I have my bottle of water? So I was really focused on every hour kind of doing an intake of what 
my nutrition was. And, and so that was very helpful. And then, you know, so much has changed and there's so much more science and research over the years. Um, I really refer to now Dr. Stacy Sims regarding nutrition and, and, you know, her research follows what I learned from Dr. Cindy Dallow. And I posted this article that she said about solids versus liquids, because for me, it's all about, it doesn't, it doesn't, for me, I don't feel like it impacts me whether I get my calories from solids or liquids. To me, it's all about making sure I get the, the appropriate amount of car- calories or carbohydrate. And I've, I've really am not someone who's had GI distress due to nutrition. I've had issues where I've had lack of nutrition, like, like on the marathon portion of an Ironman, or I've gone too hard on a 70.3 ride or an Ironman ride which has kind of messed up my nutrition a little bit because the pacing was off. Mm -hmm. Because when it comes to Ironman and 70.3, it's all about pacing and nutrition to have a a high success rate of of whatever you however you define success. And so I know my faults sometimes when I have a little bit of stomach issues or I bonk, it's primarily always, I can reflect on, it's always been I've gone a little bit too hard on the bike. And again, back in the day, that was before I used a power meter and you know a lot has, again a lot has changed since those bonking days hmm. and so um this was an interesting article that stacy sims wrote so i posted it in the t2 endurance group and i just wanted to get other people's opinions on what they were successful with yeah jeff uh, wrote here i'm 90 percent liquid nutrition he uses a combination of i don't recognize these but uh morton 320 plus crank sports e-fuel the e-fuel allows me to increase or decrease calories depending on a number of scoops, and both are easy on the stomach, as opposed to what Katie says, that uh, she's trying to get away from gels because she has stomach issues or feels sick when she has them. So, unfortunately, if gels aren't a solution, um, I mean, they're so popular and they're out there. I wish she could for her sake. Yeah, and, and I want to make one comment about gels. For me, yeah. um, vanilla flavored gels are really the only things that work for me. Mm. I've, I've, I've taken like a chocolate flavored gel during mm. the race and it's, it's made me feel nauseous. And I've also tried the berry gels during a race, which make me feel nauseous. But when I just stick to vanilla, it's like for me, vanilla frosting and <laughs> I, I kind of want it. I kind of uh. enjoy the flavor. I'm fine with vanilla. So really, really texture and flavor definitely will impact what you can tolerate i think it's weird yeah i usually just uh i've been a goo guy for the longest <laughs> time just like goo and those chocolates are so thick it is like a yeah, uh, almost a, a cake um frosting but thicker yeah, yeah. it's uh, a little too much but i'm a vanilla bean guy myself totally uh, stephanie writes uh, on this same topic i use infinite nutrition 100 percent on the bike it's a custom blend just for herself i didn't know you can do that it's kind of cool and then she has, this is smart. This is smart for anybody, whether it's your bike computer or your, your watch when you're running. I have the bike computer beep every 15 minutes, so I, that's when I know when to take a sip. And um, that's how she does her liquid fuel. She likes it for several reasons. It's custom to her. She doesn't need to fumble with gels or waffles. And she doesn't need to think about what she needs to fuel with. And she just makes a concentrated mix and then um, fills it up with her water. No, I do, I do like the break of having waffles just to have something to chew on every once in a while, mm-hmm. just to feel like you have something in your stomach. 
um, on the bike, which I'll do maybe an hour before the bike ends for half, for example, just to have something a little more solid. And if you depends on the what time of day you're riding or what the conditions are, warm gel mixed with the water, isn't that uh, isn't that tasty? It's okay first thing when you're on the bike, but after a while, it's like oh, this is warm, yucky nutrition water. Yeah, but I agree. And and I'm also a solid person. I like to eat. Like I just like the I like the chewing. I like just the whole process of eating. And speaking of warm liquid, um, back in my early Ironman days. Um, I met with a, a nutrition person, and she recommended that I take a Boost or an Ensure and ah. have that in my and have that in my special needs bag. Yep. And I used to do that, and that's important to like freeze it before yes. you put it in your special needs bag because yep. a warm Boost slash Ensure is really gross. <laughs> but back in the day when I ha- when I used to eat whey protein and stuff like that, that was actually went down really well hmm. to get that at you know halfway through the bike. And to drink it, it was you know, but it wasn't Gatorade, but it was like a meal. It was a com- good combination oh, yeah. of proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. That was a really good suggestion back then. Yeah, I've heard that uh, from people in my circle that they used to, and I don't know if they do it anymore, but they would have an Ensure right after the swim for the first part of the bike just to get some, you know, some really good calories in them for an Ironman race, not a half, mm-hmm. but an Ironman race. And I did uh, freeze my water bottle uh the little handheld water bottle that i put in my jersey for my last race and it was a combination of a uh, liquid iv just you know more uh, flavorful water and water uh-huh. it was only like six ounces or something like that but it was cold on the run which is nice and i kept it with me and i just refilled it with aid station waters or whatever along the way so that's a, a, a interesting topic if you want to join in on that conversation there's uh, about a dozen comments or so in that so t2 endurance club join in and uh you know give your two cents on how how you are when it comes to liquid or the combination of liquid and solids for your your fueling. Uh, one other one, this is going to tie into a question I have for Wendy, and it has to do with, you know, how much slower are clip-on aero bars as opposed to, you know, the, re- the regular ones that are meant for a tri-bike. And so I'm just going to read here what uh, Chris, uh, Kirsten wrote here. This is your friend Kirsten, isn't it, that yeah. you uh, do your uh, challenges with? She says uh, she rode a road bike for the first 16 years of triathlon, and it is so much more comfortable than any tri-bike she's ever had. Um, You're only as aero as you can maintain an aero position on a road bike with clip-ons. I can stay aero for the whole Ironman. I haven't been able to do that since I get uh, two different tri-bikes. Since I got two different tri-bikes? You know what? I loved her comment because I felt the same way where I was, I rode a road bike for 16 years before I got my first tri-bike. And I used to throw on, back in the early days, my first, you know, probably five years of racing, I would just throw on a variety of different kind of aero bars, Mm -hmm. like the day before my race. (laughs) Sometimes, like, if you bought, like, the two, that you sometimes one would fall off, and I'd be having to hold it on. Oh, yeah, they twist forward and back. Yeah, and, and, and so it's not something I recommend, but again, back then, I, I learned a lot, and it was just some, you know, very good learning opportunities, and for my very first Ironman in 1997, I used what's called spinaches, which are, are little tiny, like, aero bars, little tiny ones, and they were made for road cyclists, like the Tour de France riders. And so if you're a road biker, you, you remember what spinaches were. And that's what I used for my very first Ironman. I didn't even have aero bars, and I had a road bike. I had a light-speed catalyst road bike back then. And so I think 
like Kirsten said, you're only as arrow <laughs> as you are arrow for the time you're on the bike. And I think comfort is really most important when it when it comes to what bike you're going to use in a race and whether you're going to use arrow bars or not. If you're doing a very hilly course, a sprint or an Olympic half or full, a road bike is it could be more appropriate than a triathlon arrow geometry bike if you're on a flat course definitely I recommend the aero bike and again I posted an article with this question and in the end in the end when if you read the article it does say that the clip on aero bars will make you more aerodynamic they're not going to slow you down and so that's a good option you know it's a better option to throw on some clip on aero bars on your road bike rather than just ride the road bike in a road position for aerodynamic sake. I just typed this in. I was just thinking about this with uh, based on a conversation I had before uh, my last race and then what you're talking about here. I was curious about at what speed does it matter if you're sit up on your handle bar, your bars versus staying in the aero position. And I remember the talk was maybe around 14 miles per hour. If you're at 14 miles per hour, stay in the aero position because you're still getting some advantage. Anything less, you know, if it's 10 or under, probably doesn't matter. <clears throat> and so I typed that in here, and I, I, the question was, at what speeds do aerodynamics make a difference on a bicycle? It says here, this is uh, based on somebody's blog, at speeds over 10 miles per hour, aerodynamics, aerodynamic drag becomes the dominant force of resistance. So over 10, with no wind on a flat terrain, at 18 miles per hour, it becomes 80% of the resistance. 25 miles per hour, it becomes 90% of the dominant force. So for those of you who aren't comfortable or when I sit up while you're going downhill, it's like, oh, I'm relaxed. I got a chance to just to coast down this hill and get free speed. I'm not pushing any watts. If you go at 18 and you sit up, 80% becomes resistance. So if you can stay lower, then you're going to be, you know, moving farther along than someone who isn't at your same size and um, position probably. Yeah. Did you know that that number approximately around 10 miles per no, hour? No, I would have said 16. I know oh. there's data out there, but I haven't thought about it. So mm -hmm. I'm glad you, you did a search because I did the same search after you mentioned it and I got the same response. No, I would have guessed it was like 15 or 16 miles an hour, not okay. 10 miles an hour. Yeah, so that when I was being told 14, stay down, it's like, okay. And I did stay down. Um, it, was, it, was, it was hard to because it didn't feel like I'm going that fast at 14 miles per hour, especially if you're kind of just cruising along at a gradual incline. It was a smart move in the end. Okay, so this um, tails into or dovetails into my follow-up question I had for Coach Wendy is that I'm taking off my rear race wheel for training purposes, and then I'm considering keeping that training wheel on for an Olympic distance race here in about three or four weeks if I just decide to do it. And what are your thoughts on that, that adjustment for an Olympic distance? So regardless of being an Olympic distance race, I, I think it's fine. So the reason I say that is, again, back in the day, we didn't have all this aero equipment. We yeah. didn't have all this, this, this equipment that gave you, you know, what, what I consider free speed. Now, like, I don't even own race wheels. And so now I always will race what I'm going to call a B or C race, a less important race a training race, you know, whatever you want to call it. I'm always going to do it with my regular wheels that I train with, with 
heavy-duty tires and tubes and all that to prevent flats because because of my purpose and my why and my reason I'm doing these lesser important races. And then for the big ones that I'm really going to compete, um, I will rent wheels or borrow wheels from a friend. And I feel, always feel like they make me faster, they're lighter, they're more aerodynamic. And I I save them Hmm. for the big day because that's, for me, that's my why. That's my most important investment is that one or two races a year where I'm going to invest in in a little bit more gear to get that free speed. So for you, yeah, I say why not? I mean, you also did mention before we started the podcast, you're going for, you know, how many watts can you produce during this Olympic distance? And so you're going to produce the same amount of watts whether you have an aero wheel or not. Yeah. But the aero wheel at let's just say 200 watts is going to make you faster than a non-aero wheel at the same wattage, possibly. Because again, you still have to train. You still have to put in a certain amount of intensity and volume of training to hit a certain pace and speed. And if you're not doing that, then the then all the aerodynamic stuff is not going to do what it should do for you. So yeah, that's my voice on that. I should have done a little more research. I just gives one of those thoughts that just popped in my head before the podcast, but here's one little paragraph, a couple sentences on drag. And hopefully this makes sense. There's, it's a deeper article here, but I'm just picking out one thing that I think makes sense. It says here, a key factor we need to consider is the drag area, which is the product of the object's drag force and its frontal area. Using aero wheels has been found to reduce a cyclist's uh, drag area by three to five percent. So, if you generate in this example 350 watts of power using aero wheels, could see your speed on the flats increase. And they got kilometers here: 44.6 kilometers per hour to 45.4 kilometers per hour, which is only an increase of 1.6 percent. I don't know if that's enough. And again, this is. They're talking about some big power numbers here. Well, again, is- it, it, again, it goes back to what I just said. You know, you at, if you were to sustain 200 watts, if you have an arrow wheel, you're going to go a little bit faster at 200 watts than without the arrow wheel. And at the same time, it all goes back to, you know, what's your why, what's your goal, what's your reason mm-hmm. for putting the arrow wheel on versus, or what's your reason for the race, number one. Yeah. You know, and, and to me, sometime, uh, most of the time, the arrow wheel is going to have carbon um, a carbon frame. So you have to put on carbon brake pads and I'm, I'm not going to do that by myself. So taking it to the bike shop and having them switch out the brake pads and switch out the wheels takes time, takes effort, takes energy. And sometimes I just don't want to deal with that until I know this is, you know, real, a really important race for me. Then I put in a lot more time and energy and effort into making everything as perfect as it can be. Mm-hmm. So for your sake, I say no. Just keep the training wheel on and, and see see what happens. Yeah, and, and when I talked about that I'm going to work on watts, I just want to see my watts. My, the goal is to get some good data, even though it's only going to be for an Olympic distance uh, because my next race after that is a full. So they don't really equate, but it'd be interesting to see what I can uh, hold or what my average would be after that 25 yeah. miles. We'll see. I don't know. And obviously, the, the racing um, uh, aero wheels are lighter, so there's a little bit of an advantage here. But I, I don't know if we, we always 
when we talk about these different pieces of equipment, it usually makes the biggest difference for those who are, or those people who are, who are very elite, who are the ones who are trying to make these smaller gains, I think. You know, by the, by the aero helmet, the wheels, all these yeah. lighter components, in the end, it, they care more than I think you and I should, well, not you, but <laughs> the average age grouper should care. I and, and I agree too, you know, because this is their job, this is their profession, this yeah. is a, a, an aero an helmet, wheel, whatever, um, sock, you know, they have aero socks now. It could make a difference between thousands of dollars and yep. their placement. And I think it's, I think it's, I think it's definitely a worthwhile investment if you have the investment, time, and energy, and monetary value to do this. But at the same time, and at the same time, if you're not putting in the volume or intensity of training that's going to get you to reach your potential, yeah. then the the gear could just be a band aid, and it's not the fix. It's not the right. reason. It's not the reason I'm going to go and, and shine at my next race. It's it, the reason I'm going to go and perform well or you or anyone else out there. It's because of other factors, internal right. factors, and, and your whys and, and, and enjoyment of the process and the challenge and achieving your goal regardless of what type of equipment you have. I could out-train you and still go faster and you have all the highest level equipment in the in the world but if you train you know 80 percent less than me or what i mean you know 20 percent less than me i still should out race you because i right. put the train in i right. mean you look back in the 80s or early 90s at the pros and they didn't have the best equipment they had clip-on aero bars in the uh, early iron man days and they still had amazing times so and they had funky equipment i mean yeah anyway i'll move on Let's get to some questions, some other questions here that were messaged to us. This is from Michelle. Michelle is competing in the age group nationals in August. And right there says a lot, but the rest of this kind of confuses me, Wendy. And she's debating whether to rent a tri-bike or road bike. She says, I've never ridden a tri-bike before, yet she's competing in the age group nationals. Would you recommend sticking with what I'm used to for race day, or is the learning curve transition to a tri-bike not too bad? I could try and rent a tri-bike and train on it before nationals, but there doesn't appear to be many rental options in my area. Thank you for your thoughts. Am I a little off base here? I'm being confused. No, I, I read it the same way. So first of all, you should, yeah, she's going to nationals. That's awesome. That's exciting. And at the same time, um, you know, qualifying for nationals, you generally have to finish in a certain percentage at a USA triathlon sanctioned race or sprint or Olympic to qualify for nationals. And at this day and age, I mean, I hate to say anyone could qualify for nationals, but it's, it's a lot easier to qualify for nationals now than it was when I did my first nationals in 1996 at Orange County, California. And so so yes, you, you can qualify by going to a local sprinter Olympic distance race that's not that many competitive people show up, win your age group or get top three and probably get a slot to nationals. It's one of those things where US, USA Triathlon, they want people to go. They, you know, sometimes they're just sending you emails, hey, you qualified, hey, yeah. you qualified, hey, you yep. qualified. And you get so many emails and sometimes I'm like, 
oh, well, what, what trace did I qualify at? Like it wasn't even on my radar. Yeah. And then I'm like, should I go? Should I not go? I think the reason for me to go would be if I wanted to get a slot to the world championships for Olympic distance race, which I did in 2005. I went to the world championship in Honolulu, Hawaii. And that was the reason I wanted to go because it was in Hawaii that year. So anyways, moving on to the reason she could qualify and she doesn't sound like an experienced um, elite triathlete because she's not even on a tri bike, which most elite triathletes are. And when you think of nationals, you think of an elite triathlete. So kudos to her for qualifying number one. And number two, um, I understand, you know, people do rent bikes. If, you know, let's say you live on the West coast and nationals is on the East coast and it's a big commitment and monetary value to get a bike box, fly with your bike, et cetera. Renting a bike is, is an option. But for a race like age group nationals, I wouldn't want to rent a bike because I'd be going to age group nationals to really be com as competitive as I can. For you. And I'm going to be as competitive as I can racing on the bike that I train on. Mm -hmm. So I would I would say, sure, you can rent a bike. And again, if, if tri bikes in your local area are hard to rent, I bet you they're really difficult to rent on race day at, at a certain race venue because other people are. And since um, COVID happened in 2020, Bikes are just hard to come by and Seriously. you know, there's still bike parts, um, labor, everything is really tough. So again, to everyone out there getting ready for a fall race, if you haven't gotten your bike tuned up or if you need any parts, you better order them now because they are, it might take a few weeks for them to get in. So that's just a side note. Um, number two, the learning curve going from a road bike to a tri bike. I already mentioned earlier in the podcast that I used to slap aero bars on my road bike and ride. I don't recommend it. It was a learning curve, but I was very naive and very inexperienced and young. It, it was like kind of whatever, no big deal to me, but, but now, now it would be a big deal to me. And I think the positions of tri bike versus road bike, the geometry is very different. And so I wouldn't recommend showing up at a race, riding a tri bike for the first time in a race setting. I don't recommend that either. And so, you know, if you're going to rent a bike, I would try to rent a bike with the same geometry and dimensions as the road bike you're riding now mm -hmm. and just use that race day because that's what you're going to be most comfortable on. Good feedback. And I'm, I'm guessing maybe Michelle, it, it depends. I don't know what age group she's in, which might make it she might have a better chance, depends on what age group she's in, to qualify. Mm -hmm. But you're right. When I remember getting a couple of these postcards back in the <clears> day <throat> when I was racing a, a lot more during the year, pre-kids, mm -hmm. so I could race you know, almost every other weekend. And just by the nature of participating a lot, I was getting closer and closer. And then a small sprint, I would be in the top three, and the, there, there's, there's my postcard. But it's more expensive to fly to wherever it was, Wisconsin, to do a sprint or an Olympics. Like, ah, it's not worth it, as cool as it is. And then my own pride or ego says, yeah, but I, it's not really a race I earned because everyone's getting a postcard. Right. It didn't seem as special. It's just more of a, a, cel a celebration race. That's fine. Yeah. But I mean, I'm more of a lifetime uh, triathlete, so I want to earn things along the way, not like, oh, I did five years and I, I got the age group nationals and, and then I, I right. quit. So for me, hey, n no offense. I mean, great, Michelle. Do it. Go. Just ride the bike that you're comfortable with. That's what I think. All right, from Katie. All right, Katie. Katie's 50, and she finished her first sprint. Congratulations. And she was following our Couch to Sprint program, which you can find on Training Peaks. 
You can also go to endurancehour.com and you'll see all our plans there. Everything was great except the swim. So Kate and I have a couple of things in common. We're both 50 and our swims aren't that great <laughs> because it was open water. Otherwise, I'm, I'm a good swimmer. Uh, it was an open water and I didn't practice any open water before my event. This is a sprint. She says the darkness and thoughts really got to me and I finished. Any suggestions on how to overcome this uh, and tips leading up to her Olympic distance next? Um, again, a great question, very common among triathletes. Um, people can be really, triathletes can be very strong in the in the pool. And if they've never been in open water, it can be a freak out fest from the beginning. I remember my first race like it was yesterday. I wrote a blog on it. And it was in um, Great Lakes Triathlon in Michigan. I was a collegiate swimmer. I did the team event, and then I did the event the next year. It, the water was like warm, 83 degrees, no wow. wetsuits. Probably didn't even know what a wetsuit was back then, never <laughs> even considered it. But I remember plunging, my first plunge diving in, and you can't see anything. It was dark, sandy, warm gross feeling and it helped me swim as fast as I could. I mean, I was a strong swimmer, but I understand that feeling of what lies beneath. Again, another blog I've written called what lies beneath when you can't see anything, there's no lane line. Um, there's bodies all around you. Again, what lies beneath, you don't know what's under there and that could play, that could play tricks with you and really make you mentally unstable. And so, you know, stuff you can do in the pool. Again, I wrote a blog about things you can practice in the pool. If, and I think I even have a video on the yeah. Endurance Hour YouTube channel about it. Yeah. Things you can practice in the pool to get you ready for open water in case you don't have access to open water to practice in. Sometimes um, just swimming with closed eyes. You can't see anything. Um, swimming with some people in your lane. So you're used to touching each other and bodies swimming over you and you swimming over someone else. Um you know, practicing sighting in the pool. And so there's a lot of things you can do, but ultimately you got one under your belt, you experienced open water, you know what your fears and frustrations were, and hopefully moving forward to your Olympic distance race, you will have um, access or make it a priority to find access to open water swimming for, before your next event, or go to that endurance hour and watch that YouTube video that I created to give you a little more tips that you can practice on your own. And um, as far as like, you know, going from a sprint to Olympic, you know, the main thing about that is, you know, your training volume gets a little bit longer on your longer, longest ride, longest run, longest swim. But for the most part, um, the, the Monday through Friday workouts are, are pretty similar. They're not that much more intense or not that much more volume related, but it's just the longer rides and runs to prep you for double the distance. Now, the endurancehour.com, we have a couch to Olympic distance program? Yeah. Okay. Yes, we do. And I have found what problem that I experience, and this hopefully this can help with Kate's question, is that I lift my head up to sight too often, which is going to drop my lower body and create more drag and make it a slower race. And one thing I'm going to work on, which I have worked on in the past, but because of my last two experiences, I'm going to do this from now on. I'll try, this for, I'll try it soon. Is maybe swim six to six to eight strokes before and closing my eyes, then look up to see where my body is, to see if I'm veering left or veering right, and how I can correct that, and close my eyes because when you're out there, if you can keep your head down for six to eight strokes, and while while you're breathing, of course, then you'll see 
if you're going left and right and you'll limit the amount of times you lift your head up, which will most probably in some cases uh, drop your legs and create dra- drag and slow you down. But I know we have a lot of open water swimming tips videos that Wendy did at a lakeside um, and then demonstrations and videos. There's tons of them on our channel. Yeah, I, I suggest definitely checking out all those tips and just getting ex- just getting experience um, goes a long way. Having that one experience really is prepping you a lot for the next one. Yeah, and then you're just going to build on top of experience and top of experience. And they're two different beasts, you know, sprint to Olympic. I mean, it's going to seem overwhelming. I know it does. And you look out there going, their buoys are way out there for an Olympic. It seems pretty far. But next thing you know, you're done with the race and move on and have some fun on the bike and run. Yeah. Uh, We're going to finish off with one more question. And this is from Tim. Wendy, I'm doing Ironman Chattanooga. And you always say it's good to have a plan post-Ironman. So I'm thinking about that plan. What are your thoughts on doing a marathon four weeks after the Ironman? (laughs) <laughs> well, what do I think? It always depends. <laughs> um, okay, number one, kudos to you for having a plan. I think that's really important. It, you know, it, A plan can be you're going to do another race. A plan could be you're going to take time off. A plan could be you're going to travel. A plan could be you're done with triathlon. You never want to do that again. As long as you know what to expect after specifically a long-distance event such as a 70.3 or 140.6 because you put in, most people put in so much time and energy leading up to this one day, it can be a letdown. People go through post-Ironman depression syndrome, and we've talked about that on other podcasts and videos. But let's talk about what, what you want to do as, as a marathon. Mm-hmm. Now, again, it depends. Is, is Chattanooga going to be your first Ironman or your 10th Ironman? So it really just depends on your experience. And if you have experience, then you understand the recovery process after an Ironman. I think, I think having an event post Ironman, especially if you do have experience, is kind of a backup plan because anything can happen race day. When I did Chattanooga in 2018, I had a mechanical on the bike and it just blew the wind off my sails. It was so disheartening um, to have this bike mechanical and I ended up having a decent marathon, but still, you know, I I, I was doing so well. I had the mechanical and that was my last race of the season and I was Mm. done and I came home and I hung up my bike and I'm like, okay, my plan was to hit the trails and do some trail running. I'm like, I just need some, I just need away from my bike because I was so disappointed. So having a backup plan like that in case something goes wrong with your Ironman experience, then you're like, okay, you know, I, you know, another race, I've walked the marathon of an Ironman. And while I was walking the marathon, I'm like, oh, I wonder if I can get an Ironman Arizona in six weeks just to, you know, have something to look forward to as I'm walking the marathon in Kona. So it is definitely good to have another event planned for that reason. As far as is it a good idea? You know, if you don't have to sign up for it early, I wouldn't. Mm. I would just kind of keep it in the back burner because you also might have the best experience of your life and your body may be trashed and you might not want to do a marathon four weeks later. And so you don't want to force an event when your body and mind are not feeling like they need to do another event for the season. So really, you know, it's good to have that on your mind, but if you don't have to sign up for it yet, I would wait and to see how you finish and how you feel after you finish. Does it seem uh, a little easier and and easier to uh, wrap your head around just doing a marathon after you've done a full Ironman 
uh, let's say you're taking seven to ten days off to recover, then you think, oh, I only have to do the marathon next. So I can kind of just these next week and a week or so right. is going to be some light running because I'm already fit, but I don't have to worry about the swim and the bike. There's seven hours right there or more. Uh, I can just do a run and I'm already fit. You know, it is from a mental standpoint, it is easy to wrap. Oh, you know what? I'm already trained for the Ironman. I can do a marathon and you can. And at the same time, you may have some niggles or injuries or not an injury post Ironman, but you, you may have a little bit slower recovery time. And if your marathon is four weeks later, your body may just be like, no, I don't want to run 26 miles again. I need a little more time. Again, this is based on my personal experience. I've been there, done that. I understand how the body, how my body recovers depending on how hard I push an Ironman and how well mm -hmm. I, how well I do. And it's usually the marathon, whether it's just a marathon or a marathon after 112 miles on the bike, that's what causes the damage. And whether you, even if you feel great and you re feel recovered a week or two, you may start running and your body may say, ah, oh, not yet. <laughs> oh, I got this hip pain. I got this ankle pain. I got this knee pain that I didn't know I had yeah. because I haven't run for two weeks after my Ironman, but the damage was being made during that Ironman marathon that you might not feel for a couple weeks later. Yeah. So it's just really important to um, really get, just don't focus on the marathon right now, that's four weeks after your Ironman, put your energy into the Ironman and do as well as you can do with the with the plan that you might do an Ironman or you might do a marathon four weeks later. Pretty good topics today. Uh, and which helps us, you know, look back on our experience and share those uh, those stories with you and get some value mm -hmm. out of it. So good stuff today. Yeah, thank you for those who submitted the questions. For Wendy Mater, Coach Wendy, who is um, next race for you, is uh, is Kona or is there something before that I forgot? Um, I just signed up for an Olympic distance race. It's, okay starts three quarters of a mile from my home oh, and that's nice. um that's um called the east cop triathlon it's a pool swim and then olympic oh. distance bike and run are you gonna walk there or ride your bike there for your warm-up or just I'll, I'll ride my bike there yeah that makes sense three quarters of a mile that's awesome i know super I'm, close yeah i did it last year for the first time it was really fun and just being so close yeah. i run by my um i run by my street so my husband was waiting at the end oh, of my street right. so he saw me run and it's a three-loop run course, so he could see me a few times. And then he walked to the finish, so he was at the finish line when, you know, when I finished. And then we walked home together, and I changed. And then I went back for the awards. So That's it was cool. really just really convenient. Wow. Like in your, back, out in your backyard. Perfect. Yeah. All right, buddy. Everyone, thanks you so much for listening. This is uh, episode 364. One more, and we got a full year's worth of podcasts took me you know 10 years to get one but oh well 364 <laughs> is now done we'll see you next week for 365 for wendy mater i'm dave erickson have a great week of training racing or recovery adios adios